Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Debtors to Christ. telling you about it. And if you've got any questions, just come ask. Well, Romans chapter eight, continuing to work through this passage together, we've got a a week this week, as well as however long we spend on verse 13. And that is to be determined in weeks to come. That is kind of, um, you know, the main thing we've been seeing here are these nine works that the Holy Spirit is doing within us to transform us. Well, kind of in the midst of all of that, God's also teaching other things. And verses 12 and 13 um, are some of these other things as well. And so verse 12 is primarily what we'll meditate on this morning. Let's read it together and then I'll pray. So then brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit, You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Let's pray. Our God who is holy, holy, holy. You are enthroned in heaven and around your throne at all times. There is vibrant worship that is occurring. Lord, we come and join the worship of heaven. We bow ourselves down and we want to lift up our voices to join the angels and the souls already gathered to you and magnify your name. You are the great God of the cosmos. You are Lord of heaven and earth. You are worthy for all to worship. It grieves us that this earth is in rebellion to you. It grieves us that we were once in rebellion to you. And God, we long for all souls to come and give you the worship, obedience, and glory and service and honor that you are worthy of. And so Father, we pray that this time would be to that end. Father, we ask that not only that as we are here and bowing ourselves down and what we're doing right now is submitting ourselves to you by listening to your word and deciding that we're gonna obey it and Lord, lifting up gratitude to you. But Father, not only here, but we pray that you would do what worship does, you tell us. Father, that in this time we'd be transformed, that when we leave here and live the rest of our time in this world, oh God, that it would please you, that we would live a life of worship. So Father, we pray, come to us. Please give us more power of your spirit. We pray that he will stir and shine and work. Lord, awaken our sleepy bodies and sleepy hearts. Father, to see as we should, to worship as we should, to rejoice as we should, have gratitude as we should, and submit and repent as we should. Lord, all of these worship affections, please stir them, oh God. And God, uh, use me, I I pray, in this. Help me to teach in a way that is helpful to clearly explain the text and, Lord, not to get distracted and not to do it in a way that's not honoring to you. So please, God, bless this time. Give us grace. Glorify your name as you work through your word, we pray. And it is in the name of Christ that we ask these things. Amen. 
Under the law of the old covenant, when God gave Israel a system of how to worship him, mankind in our darkness and our blindness, we don't know how to glorify God. So God came to the people he entered into covenant with and he showed them, here's how you worship me. And he gave them that system that we see in the old covenant. There were a, it was a complex and very broad, wide reaching system. There were a number of free will offerings, uh, vows that worshipers could take that a person did not have to do. It wasn't required, but just out of the worship of their hearts, when it spilled over to a desire to glorify God further, they could come and make these free will offerings and such. A free will offering is just what it sounds like. It's not required. It's like Flowers for your wife just because it's Tuesday, just simply out of love. But the law also, in teaching us how to worship and all of these things are meant for us. In fact, we would say they're even more meant for us in the new covenant than they were meant for the people in the old covenant. Scripture says that what God gave in the old covenant was meant to teach us about God, about how to worship in this new covenant, in order to teach all these things, there were a lot of parts of that old covenant system of worship that were not free will. It was required. There was obligation. In fact, when you read a lot of these sections, Leviticus, Exodus, numbers, and then, and then Moses preaches more on it in Deuteronomy. In fact, when you're reading through these sections, it can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming to try to imagine that you were living under that covenant and all that was required. One of the things that just gets preached very clearly is that worship is the priority of existence. Worship is the priority of all of life. Worship is the priority that is even occurring in heaven right now. Worship is the priority of our lives, even when we're not treating it like it is the priority. Some of these sections are overwhelming. So think, think through some of what we're shown with me. At the temple, on a daily basis, on behalf of the nation, so this would be the priests were offering these things on behalf of the nation every single day. There were two offerings that were made, two lambs that were slain, blood atonement, bodies burned up to the Lord. This happened in the morning and the evening. At the start of the day, as the sun rises, at the close of the day, as the sun sets, there's a picture there. Morning and evening, worship is the priority of life. If nothing else was happening that day, that worship would occur. At the end of a year, that's 730 lambs offered up. But in addition, every Sabbath day, there were additional offerings that were to be made up. There were two more lambs that would be offered up every Sabbath. At the new moon of every month, so this would happen 12 times a year, there were to be offered in addition to the daily sacrifices, there would be two bulls, large, valuable animals offered as worship on behalf of the nation. And then I, I won't be able to memorize all this, so I'm gonna read off of my notes here what I have. At the feast of Passover, it was required to offer two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, a grain offering, 
a lamb for a sin offering and a drink offering of wine poured out at the temple. That was also repeated seven days in a row at the feast of the Passover. For seven days, all of that was offered. Then you come to the feast of weeks. That second of the yearly festivals, a similar collection of offerings was given on this high day. You come to the Feast of Trumpets. Again, a similar set of offerings that were lifted up. The same on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then additionally, there was that lamb that was brought into the Holy of Holies. At the Feast of Booths, this was a big one. Feast of Booths was a seven day long festival. Again, this is when uh, the Israelites would um, make those little huts and they would sleep out in remembering their days in the wilderness. On day one of the Feast of Booths, they were to offer 13 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, a grain offering, a goat for a sin offering and a drink offering. On day two, they were to offer 12 bulls, and then everything else that I just mentioned. On day three, it was 11 bulls, and then everything else I just mentioned all the way down. So in all, at the Feast of Booths, there were 70 bulls and 98 lambs that would be offered. And by the way, you know, you're, you're hearing this, there's a lot of truth being taught in this. There's a lot of theology you know, one would be, think about how expensive all of this would be. Think about the perspective of the skeptic the skeptic looking in at all of this and in his mind, just burning all of this stuff up. All of this is supposed to help us get a handle on the infinite worth of God. But additionally, throughout the year for the individual. So this would be not just on behalf of the nation, but for the individual worshiper, there were five different kinds of offerings that the individual worshiper was to be participating in. Sin offerings, guilt offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and then we're told about the peace offering, but that one was a free will offering. But also for the individual, God commanded the giving of the first fruits. The, the first of what was harvested was set aside for the Lord before you even partook of any yourself. You are setting this aside to the Lord. Closely connected to that was the tithe. The tithe was 10% of any any increase whatsoever that God gave to you from the herbs that grew in your flower pots to the money that you made to finding something in the woods, 10% was given as an act of worship. And in fact, when God addresses the tithe in the book of Malachi, when he preaches on it, he explains it in terms of like renting a field. The metaphor is giving that if you were to rent a field from someone, well, then you owed the landowner an agreed upon percentage of the harvest. If you failed to pay what you owed, you were cheating. It was a form of theft. And God said that to fail to bring him the tithe was robbing God. The firstborn of every female animal that was born belonged to the Lord and was brought as an offering. The firstborn of every family was to be regarded as the Lord's. And there was an offering that was to be made uh, on behalf, acknowledging the reality that this firstborn belongs to God. On, on and on throughout the law, we probably haven't even covered a half of all that God explained there. There were obligations that God commanded. These were not up for discussion. This was, as the people of God, this is worship that is required. 
You know, sometimes when people hear about the tithe for the first time, you know, you remember being a new Christian, hearing about that, like, oh man, 10%, are you serious? Okay. <laughs> when we read the Bible, like it blows us away how much more part of the reality that we see there is God owns it all. He deserves for us to render everything unto him. God owns every bit. He's worthy of all worship. If every breath that we draw was created by God, every morsel of food that we take in, it's all been provided by him. We have a duty to obey his law, worship him as the glorious God that he is, serve him wholeheartedly. We are obligated to spend every single moment, every breath, Every breath of our existence, it is worth it to spend in glorifying God. And this is the principle. He's supreme over all, rules over all, worthy of all. It is a cosmic principle. We have obligations to the God who formed our very lives and rules over all. Well, in the passage that we're considering this morning... We're told, we're told that there are obligations that the Christian has. So, you know, let me first of all begin there. We're going to talk about the fact that every creature has an obligation unto God. But there is a more so the fact, there is a many times more so the case that the Christian has an obligation to glorify God. So when I address the believer this morning, understand the we that I refer to there, the, the you who are in Christ, that's you who have understood your need of salvation. You have heard the message of the Bible, that there is a punishment that you deserve because of your sin. The answer is Christ. If you will come to him in repentance and faith to have forgiveness of sins, you will be made right with God at that moment of coming to him like this being made right with God. You become a part of the people of God, a part of the collection of those who are in Christ. What we're told here is we are under obligation because of all that God has done in redeeming us. There's a greater weight to the responsibility that we have to worship, love, render obedience and serve the God who has poured out this grace on us. So the Christian owes God not only from the perspective that he is creator, the Christian additionally owes God because he is also our savior who has given us the, the mercy of eternal life. And so that's the primary truth we're gonna think on this morning. We are debtors to his mercy under obligation because of what he has done. So that's the primary truth we'll consider in verse 12, most specifically. I'm going to divide our time into just kind of two parts as we think on this. First is going to be the, the premise of our obligation. And then secondly, considering to think on this whole concept of obligation, duty and delight together. So first, the, the premise of our obligation. Verse 12 begins with, so then, and what it means is in, in light of everything that we have seen so far, in light of everything that we've seen, here's the response. So what, what have we seen? Well, we've made mention several times that the book of Romans is laid out in, in a very specific kind of way. And guys, it's, it's intentional. 
There's a reason why the book of Romans doesn't open up with, here are a bunch of commandments. There's a reason why we have had seven and a half chapters of theology about, first we started with our condition, our stupidity and rebellion against God and what that got us, okay? Wrath, death, hell. And then in chapters three, four, five, six, seven, and now half of eight, it has all been about, here is what God has done and he is doing for his people. Here is what God has done to make a way for us to be delivered out of the wrath that we deserve. And then for we who are in Christ, here's what he's continuing to do to just pour out grace upon grace on us. Seven and a half chapters of what God has done. Seven and a half chapters of how God has made a remedy about our salvation before we are even one time given the first bit of instruction about now go do something. Guys, that's significant. Seven and a half chapters before the first time we're given application to go do and go obey something. Sure, there have been implications that we've gone through and we've talked about applications that we can take, but this is the first time that action is really being addressed. Christianity is not first and foremost a moral program. The gospel is first and foremost the, the declaration of the work of God to save souls from hell. How God is glorifying his name by saving a people to himself for his praise and for his glory. And it's only then that we get to the part about now here's what he's doing to transform those people and to make us holy. So we don't want to make light of the call to holiness. It matters and it matters big time. There's, there's a real big command here. The Bible makes a big deal about this. But we also can never think that first and foremost, that the gospel is about, here's how to hope go become a better person. First and foremost, it is about coming to be made right with God. And then the transformation begins. But what we mean, what we see here by the, the so then, it's meant to say, in light of the grace upon grace that has come to you. Here's how we are to respond. That phrase, grace upon grace. That's a, that's a phrase from the gospel of John. And it's almost like this idea that if you imagine God's grace is like you're in the ocean and you're trying to swim in all of this grace, a wave of grace rolls over you. And before you even catch your breath, except in our illustration, this would be a good thing somehow. Before the next wave rolls over you again and you catch your breath, there's just more grace that's coming. More grace than you can name. More grace than you can list off. And I get it that a lot of times we look at our lives. And we think about all we're thinking about is how difficult things are. We're thinking about our afflictions. What we're, what we're doing, the mistake we're making there is we're thinking entirely in terms of earthly ways, entirely from the physical realm. When the fact of the matter is in the heavenly realm, what God has done in order to deliver us out of the worst possible torment and hopelessness to bring us into the greatest possible eternal delight of living in the glory and the joy of God, we are swimming in an ocean of grace. Your eternity is one of swimming 
Your, your eternity is one of being overwhelmed by the grace of God. We just got this little season of time where physically things are tough and then there's eternity. But what, what scripture is telling us is we right now in this little bitty season of affliction of living in a cursed world, we are to preach to ourselves and know this is what I have. This is my destiny. This is where I am going. I am a great recipient of grace and it is meant to stir worship. It is meant to stir gratitude and then that lead us to a different kind of response to this little bitty time in the afflictions. And if we ask the question, when we are overwhelmed by this grace, all right, I want to glorify God. I want to respond. How do I do it? This is what the text is showing. What the text is showing here is, here is how we respond to grace. We are overwhelmed by this mercy and this is how we respond. So it, it, this is to be a regular part of our life in Christ. Okay, so I'm just going to bring this application right now. This is why... Worship has to be the priority of our lives, Christians, okay? Worship cannot be a matter of secondary importance. Worship is the priority of our lives. What we do when we gather together and what happens when you families gather together in the evening before bedtime and you spend some time worshiping or you by yourself in the morning when you rise and you come draw near, read God's word, pray. Th the reason why... Worship has to be the priority of our lives is number one, it's because it is the priority, okay? In the cosmos, if you could see heaven right now, you would see it all exists for the glory of God. But secondly, worship is not the whole of the Christian life. Reading the Bible is not what all of Christianity is. But here's what worship does. Worship, when we draw near to God, and we seek his face, you know? So it's Tuesday, Wednesday morning, and you wake up and maybe you're really hungry to read your Bible and you're excited about it. A lot of times Wednesday morning comes, you wake up and you don't feel like it. And part of what our prayer is, is, all right, God, not feeling like doing this today. I, my heart's not in a good place, a little grumpy from last night, not sleeping well. I need you. I need you to put my heart right. What happens in worship what happens as we live a life of continually coming and drawing near to God is this. We reflect on the word of God. We reflect on the works of God. We reflect on the gospel. And we are again and again stirred to gratitude. We are again and again, we get our, we get our thinking right Instead of complaining about my circumstances, I think about the ocean of grace that I swim in. We get our, our gratitude where it needs to be. We, we get our joy where it needs to be. The love for God is renewed. Worship is first and foremost internal. That's going to be a big part of today. Worship is first and foremost an internal delighting and exulting in God before we ever do an action of worship. We come to God, we get our worship stirred again. And that's how you change your life. Because what happens after your heart is stirred to joy, gratitude, love for God and worship. Now we're finally in the place to go do some good deeds today. When I'm walking around grumpy with an unforgiving heart, I ain't looking to go love my neighbor. But when I've been struck by the grace of God that he saved me, 
Now I can think about, all right, love your neighbor. Okay, I can be motivated to this. Worship transforms. How do we respond to the grace that we have received? And here's what scripture is telling you. We are under obligation. And then the very next thing that verse 13 begins to address is put your sin to death. You want to glorify God? Obey him, kill your sin, live to holiness. So this is where we're moving. This is where the text is bringing us. So never stop reflecting on the gospel. In repentance, in worship, Christian, let's consider we are under obligation. Literally what the text reads is that we are debtors. That's the word there, debtors. A debtor is someone who is in debt to someone else. So if you have a loan with the bank on your house, you are a debtor to the bank. There is an obligation that you have. The New Testament uses this word from time to time. For instance, there's a really beautiful place where Paul uses this. Paul, who was overwhelmed by the grace that God had given him. You know, and there are those passages where he'll talk about, you know, I'm even a guy who arrested Christians. This is a guy who took part in the stoning of Stephen. And Paul was just amazed that God would be merciful enough to forgive him. And so what Paul says is, if God forgave me, I'm a debtor to the world. If God gave the gospel to me, then I owe the gospel to the world. The Christian has a spiritual debtorship to the world because of the grace that God gave to us. And so that's why in Romans 1.14, Paul says, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians of the world. That's the concept here. There's something I'm obligated to. There is an obligation that I have. And the word is used here for us Christians. We are indebted to God. Now, let me finish out the verse here and then we're gonna come back and keep thinking on this very critical truth here. So just finish out the verse. So we are indebted. And then you notice how he continues there. And I can almost hear Paul's tone of voice. This is what I imagine it. That as he's writing this, we are indebted. And then he goes, not to the flesh. That's how I think, that's how I think the rest of verse 12 should be read there. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then he continues on. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit, if you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, we're going to spend more time on those verses. It is not that the putting of sin to death is a good work that earns you heaven. He's once again addressing the mark of the truly justified Christian. So how can you tell somebody who has the spirit of God in them? The spirit of God leads people to put sin to death. So if you're living according to the flesh, this is a mark that the spirit is not in you. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But it begins with this truth. We are debtors. We are under obligation. The Christian is in this position of indebtedness to God. We've made mention, so is every human, even those who reject Christ. Even the unconverted man is indebted to God because of the principle of creation and God's sovereign rule over the cosmos. Life is created by God. We did not form ourselves. He formed us. Every morsel of provision comes from him. Every creature owes its existence to the sustaining grace 
of God. Jesus said that the father causes his son to shine on the just and the unjust, causes his rain to fall on even those who hate God. Even those who hate God are still indebted to him. But not only do we, those who have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, not only do we have that indebtedness, there is an immeasurable, even greater indebtedness. Because we are those who have received the grace of being pulled out of the flames. And then, you know, I don't, I'm not aware of anybody that has ever tried to make a list of here's every gift that's mentioned in the Bible to the people of God. Because at the end, you would basically just be recording <laughs> three quarters of the Bible. But if you try to do this, and it's a helpful exercise to list off the graces of God, to list off the things that we ought to be grateful for, the list is long. And it's, there's not a greater list that could be imagined. Like, like what could be bigger than the greatest possible kingdom of joy that the infinitely wise God could make? Like, you can't get bigger than that. The graces that the Christian has received, not only do we have the obligation from creation, we have the obligation of those who have received immeasurable grace. It's, it's very similar to the picture that God preaches in the book of Hosea. If you remember the book of Hosea, God came to the prophet Hosea and he told him to go marry an immoral woman a woman who was going to cheat on him. Hosea knew before it was going to happen. In fact, I, I believe the text doesn't say clearly, but I think the text implies that the woman already had a character of loose morals and Hosea knew it. God told him to go marry her because he was going to preach the gospel through their circumstances. God was going to preach through metaphor. So Hosea goes and he marries this woman named Gomer and there's, a, there's much more details to it, even in the names of children that God brings truth through. But just as God said what happened, eventually Gomer cheats on Hosea and doesn't just cheat, but leaves him entirely. And then doesn't just leave him entirely, but quite ridiculously so. She cheated on him, left him, and we don't know the whole arrangement because the text doesn't tell us everything that happened, but I think what is implied there, there comes a point where she is in a place of such destitution, it appears she's being sold as a slave. She's on the auction block, that kind of like the prodigal son who just through a series of idiotic decisions in life eventually came to a place of such poverty that there's wallowing with the pigs. Eventually she comes where she's going to be sold as a slave. And so just for a moment, imagine you're Hosea. Imagine the hurt, the heartache, the betrayal, the embarrassment that you have felt. And then you hear that she is being sold as a slave. Your flesh might have some tempting thoughts at that moment. Your flesh might have some tempting thoughts of, uh, well, I guess she regrets what she did to this now. <laughs> that she regrets leaving me. But instead... In an incredible act of mercy, God tells Hosea, go take her and join with her again. Hosea goes to the auction block and purchases his bride from slavery. He actually has to buy back his bride. And God says, this is what I am doing with the nation of Israel. I joined with you in covenant and you left me. 
and I could leave you. You are now miserable and more misery is coming. That's part of what he preached. Assyria was coming against the northern kingdom there. More misery is coming and I could leave you. But I am going to be faithful to the promises I made and I will come to you and I will take you to myself again. But that does not just apply to the physical nation of Israel because the New Testament takes the book of Hosea and applies it to us Gentiles. Because friends, you and I were united to God through Adam and Eve in covenant at creation. Joined to God and what did we do? We left him. We played the prodigal son. We played the gomer. We left God. We, look, look what we've done to the joint. We've brought destitution. We've brought misery. And apart from him, where we were headed is a place of utter torment and afflictions and sufferings for all of eternity. But in the gospel, on the cross, Christ comes and purchases us off the auction block, buys us back to himself. If we owed God allegiance before, how much more now? Like part of the point here is, how should... Gomer have treated Hosea after he mercifully bought her back and joined with her again. Christian, what do we owe God? What kind of love, what kind of gratitude, what kind of joy do we owe God? And there is obligation to give him now. There is a greater spiritual indebtedness than before. Even before we owed him, but now we cannot put a measurement, we cannot put a weight to what we owe him now. The love, the worship, the gratitude, the obedience. How do you thank somebody who saves your life? How do you thank someone who saves you from eternal destruction? Well, here's what scripture calls us. We love him. We live with gratitude. We live with Deep and joyful gratitude. By the way, just even preaching this, I feel convicted about how much of my life I spend complaining about my circumstances. God has done this and I'm upset about earthly pain. You see the point where we're supposed to put our emphasis? How do we respond? We worship him. We worship him with exceeding joy. Take that and apply it to the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, the main theme verse there is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Sometimes we read that, we're like, always? You sure, God? Always? I lost my job. Always? God, I got cancer. Always? And the point is, these earthly afflictions are nothing compared to the ocean of grace we have in eternity. We respond in worship. Worship with exceeding joy, a joy that carries us through even hardships. And then we make our life one entire great offering to God. This is how we respond. This is how we respond in worship. We respond with gratitude, a moment of worship where we fall on our knees and we thank God. That's a moment of worship, but worship is also something bigger. Worship is also a way of life. 
Worship is also offering the whole of ourselves where I decide every single detail of my life, my time, my job, my work, my play, what I do in the light, what I do in the dark, what I do with my family, all of it. I'm going to make a great offering unto God, a living sacrifice. In fact, I'm going to steal a little bit of the thunder that we would have later in Romans 12, but I just can't help myself. Turn ahead to Romans 12 for a second. The end of this whole gospel section um, ends in chapter 11. You see verse 33 there. Oh, the depths of the riches. There's this doxology that's there. And then chapter 12, verse one begins with, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. What's he doing? He's doing the same thing we're saying here, except this in chapter 12, it's bigger. In light of all of the glory of the gospel, in light of all of the mercy that we've shown, therefore I urge you, here's how you respond. Present your bodies. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he continues on. Holiness is how we will live this. When we started this morning, I was telling you about all the offerings and obligations under that old covenant. And when you're reading it, we talk about how you can feel the weight of just how much God expected of the people. And we didn't even mention half of it. Well, here's the reality. Number one, he's worth it. And that's part of what we're supposed to see. He's worth it and more. If you own the entire world and you offered it as a gift to God, it would still be a puny offering compared to his worth, his infinite worth. But the second part to, there is as well, listen to me, Christian, the new covenant does not call us to less. It is a major mistake to read that old covenant obligations and be like, boy, I'm glad God doesn't want anything of me now. Just love him. That's a lot of times the way the new covenant is summed up. All he wants now is just, you know, skip along and just love him. We are called to even more in the new covenant. We are still making offerings. We're making the fullness of offerings. Those offerings in the Old Testament, do you know what the New Testament calls those? Shadows. Shadows. Offering the bulls, the lambs, all of these things that cost you something. The New Testament says that's a shadow of a real offering. What's a real offering? Your life, your time. What is that sin, Christian, that has been plaguing you for 20 years? You want to give an offering? Lay it down. He's worthy of it. This is how we respond in worship. What we do in the light, what we do in the dark, what we do with our family, what we do with our money, with our money, you want to give God an offering? Use it. Give it all. Lay everything down for the glory of the one who saved you. This is how we respond. And we are under obligation. We owe him every breath. Every breath. We are indebted on other days. We could go further. I could take us to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 that says that we've been bought with a price. Your body is not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Just as a farmer owns an ox and the ox has an obligation to plow when the farmer yokes him up. Christian, you and I belong to God. You and I have obligation. We are owned by God. And I, I, I get it. 
So as I say those kinds of things, it could be if you're a new Christian and this, is an, this idea sounds kind of crazy to you, we're comparing ourselves to oxes. And you might be thinking, these people are brainwashed. This is insane. Listen, listen, listen to me. If, you're, if you struggle with that kind of thought, just hear me right now. Everybody in here that's nodding our heads and saying amen, we once had just as much trouble with it, okay? Like it once really bothered us to think in these kinds of terms as well. But we've come to be convinced of these truths. And when you come to be convinced of these truths and then spend some years on it slowly, I'm, I'm gonna tell you something that will happen you will come to see this as beautiful. You will come to see this truth as beautiful. I find the truth that God is the sovereign supreme one who owns me. I find it beautiful, but I didn't always. I had a lot of trouble with it. And then every once in a while, when something really hard comes, I still think it's my job to tell God how to run the cosmos. We struggle with this stuff, but I'm telling you right now, he's the sovereign supreme Lord of the cosmos judge of the living and the dead. As Christians, we recognize this. As Christians, we rejoice when we say, I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm not totally free. I'm a slave of Jesus and I delight in it. The Christian knows it to be true. It is right for us to give allegiance and submission. We are indebted to him. All right, so that's the premise of our obligation. I want to move now to continue to talk about this obligation and talk about how with this duty, we also bring in delight, duty and delight. Here's one of the things that I found. This whole principle of obligation and how it relates to love and worship can be, can be a confusing one. So as a pastor over the years, I've had a many, a many conversations with folks that have struggled to see how something can be an obligation. And then yet at the same time, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God. So how does obligation and love and worship join together? Because I do want to tell you this, they're friends. They're not enemies. Obligation and love are brothers, but sometimes we can be confused as to how they fit together. It can be challenging. And I think that that is particularly the case because we happen to find ourselves in the context of a culture. And I mean, even this particular town, a religious culture that is built on a false teaching regarding obligations and duty. I don't say this to be mean, but it is my job to tell you truth. Roman Catholicism is the world's leader in the error we refer to as formalism. Formalism is approaching religion entirely from the perspective of duties, rituals, externals, and checklists. Like I just gotta, I gotta show up to church, gotta do my duty, and now I'm okay. Now I can sin tonight because I, you know, I did my duty. You know, God counted the attendance, check, he was there, I'm good. It's approaching God entirely from simply the externals. It does not comprehend relationship with God. It does not understand love, worship, what true worship is. Because sometimes when people hear the word worship, all they hear is 
these works, these deeds, like show up to church. Even if I'm grumpy the whole time and I don't want to be there and I think it's all stupid, I worship. That ain't worship. True worship is first and foremost an internal response to God from the heart that then I sing, but I'm singing and it's beginning with joy in the heart. Exaltation of God from the heart. It begins internal, comes external. So all of this can be um, a difficulty. By the way, Catholicism is not the only place this exists. This happens in Baptist circles as well. At some point, in fact, I would say for many of us Christians, I can say it's this has been the case in my life, that there will be seasons where maybe formalism becomes a temptation for you, even if it's temporary. So we must, we must guard against it. But here's what it does. Sometimes we can have difficulty. If somebody comes out of formalism, and they become convinced of the gospel and they trust in Christ to be saved, but still their framework is in terms of checklist and duties. Then they'll treat church and these things I'm supposed to do or family devotion or these kinds of things as a checklist, just merely external kind of thing. And they fail to live relationship with God. They fail to seek the face of God, to know him. They fail to walk with God because it's all just rituals and such. And they don't, they don't see and so don't live. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then there are others. Here's another error. There are others who come out of that or at least know about it and they read the Bible. They see the error and they're like, I want to leave this and we celebrate that. And then so they take off running and they run too far. And you can be in just as much sin the other direction. And there has been an entire movement that has said that any talk of obligation, have tos, commandments to obey, any, any kind of language of things you got to do, they'll cry legalism. Get out their pitchforks and fires anytime they hear that kind of language because they're crying out legalism. There is error on the right and on the left that we must guard against. Obligation and love and worship, they are brothers and we need to see how they relate to one another. So let's think on it for a bit. Let me make a simple point. Just because some people obey commandments and do religious things out of mere obligation, that doesn't mean that obligation itself is bad. In fact, it's not bad. Obligation is a good thing and it's a principle in this world that God made. Let me see if I can illustrate this with the most beautiful relationship on earth, marriage. Let's, let's think of two places. Let me take you to two places and think on this. The first one I'll just quote because you know it. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives. That's a command. You have an obligation. Husbands, you have an obligation to God to obey that command and you have an obligation to your wife to love her. But if somebody thinks that the whole idea of obligation always has to have a bad attitude or a sour attitude or an empty heart with no love, well, this flies in the face of that. Husbands have the duty to regard their wives as precious, to have affections towards their wives. And the Bible is full of this. The Bible's full of this. If you do a study on this kind of thing, commands that have to do with 
heart affections. It's a, it's a wonderful study to do. You're going to see it all through the Bible. God commands us to delight ourselves in the Lord. God commands us to forgive one another. And part of what we have to see with the obligation part there is, there are times we don't feel like it. Don't feel like forgiving somebody. Don't want to forgive that person. But we see it in the word that it is a command. And what happens then is we go to work, not merely in the external, first and foremost, we go to work on the heart to get the heart in the right attitude and frame of mind. All right, here's the second one that I'll show. If you'll flip to the next book in the Bible after Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read just three sentences here. These are three sentences that would heal millions of marriages, both the principle and also the very specific way that it is applied. Look at these right here. 1 Corinthians 7 and find verse 3. The context is sexual intimacy. That's what's going on in the whole context here. Look at verse three. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the husband does. Stop depriving one another. And then he goes on to talk more about that. All right, what are we being shown there? Well, the very specific issue being addressed is that of sexual intimacy. But as the Bible often does, it takes a general principle and applies it to a specific situation. The general principle is husbands towards your wives, wives towards your husbands, general principle of the covenant of marriage. We have obligations to serve, meet the needs bring fulfillment, obey the commands, but even going further to things we are shown like bring delight to your spouse. That's a general principle. And then that is applied specifically to sexual intimacy. Render your duty to your spouse. But the very command itself is a command that is addressing delight, joyful things, intimacy, happy gifts of God. And it is applied here. Render your duty to your spouse. You take these verses and then you connect them with Song of Solomon, what I'll just call the greatest love poetry of all time. Biblical poetry celebrating the joys and ecstasies of intimacy, love, romance, passion, hands dripping with delight. You take these two things together and I think that the point is made clear. Obligation does not mean empty hearts automatically. Empty heartedness in regard to obligations is spiritual laziness. It is worship negligence. The existence of obligation towards God does not produce empty heartedness. It is laziness that produces that empty heartedness. So do you, do you, you tracking what, I, what I'm saying here? Some people hear the word obligation and they think that leads to bad attitudes in obeying God and people who just treat it as drudgery. You're hating the wrong enemy. The enemy is not obligation. The enemy is spiritual laziness. We are to see our obligation towards God and we are to fulfill it 
with delight. I have the obligation to give my wife kisses. But that is an obligation that is supposed to be all about delight and joy. We have obligations towards God if we render those with a bad attitude or treat it as drudgery, stupid church, gotta show up today. If we approach him like that, it's not obligation's fault. That's the spiritual laziness of my own heart to get my heart where it's supposed to be. Obligation is not your enemy. Spiritual laziness is the enemy and we are to fulfill our obligations with delight. Now, I think we also need to say, speak at least briefly to the other side that we said we must guard against. We must be careful and very careful that we not take the whole obligation thing and then approach God from a mere obligation perspective. Obligation with a loveless, worshipless, thankless, gloomy heart does not please God. We are to obey his commands, but we must understand that part of obeying a command is to do it with the right spirit and attitude. So we are commanded to give. It would be dishonoring to God to have a bad, hateful attitude and toss it in there and be like, there. But part of obeying the command is having joy and delight while we obey the command. We are to do all works with a worshipful heart. Worship is first and foremost an internal heart response to God and then we act on it. Repentance is first and foremost an internal heart response to God and then we act on it. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Christian, let's never let ourselves settle to just doing religious activity without engaging the heart. We got to be careful that we not give ourselves excuses because we can play some weird games with our own minds. So there's, there's been the kind of idea where some have said, well, I don't feel like giving, so it would dishonor God if I did. That's wrong as well. We got to bring our hearts to engage in worship while we obey him. We cannot let ourselves settle into a mere checklist kind of mentality. We announced last week that we're gonna start a Saturday evening service and part of the discussion that we had and even amongst the leaders as we were hashing this thing out, one of the things we brought up is I've not liked Saturday evening services in the past. We talked through some of those reasons and one of the reasons why you have probably known someone at some time who said, I love Saturday evening mass because then I can go do my duty, I've done my religion, and now I can go get drunk, now I can party, because I did my duty, now I'm okay. Well, there's not only error in thinking that if I do a good deed, it leaves room for sin, that's wrong, but it's also the error of thinking checklist mentality. We, we relate to God in relationship. God has called us to know him. We are to love the Lord our God. Worship is the heart delighting in him, the heart stricken with his, worship, his worth. Worship is comprehending his grace and thanking him. It is longing to know him. Worship is desiring God and desiring to please him. We walk with him, 
not simply do rituals. Worship is of the heart. It is counting God as worthy and then acting on it. So Christian, let's act on it. We have received grace upon grace. We are under obligation. In the coming weeks, we're going to start getting more specific. Today was very broad, and a lot of this has been broad. We're coming to the section where we're going to get real uncomfortable about your and my individual sins that we need to work on. But we got to establish the foundational principles here. We are under obligation. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is already putting some thoughts in your head about your particular sin. Let's go to work on it. We're debtors to grace, debtors to the Spirit. Let's live unto Him. And if you're here and you've never turned to Christ to be saved, listen, you are also indebted to God. You are also under obligation. And your obligation, here's what the Bible says, it is to give full and complete obedience to God. That's not the only one. You're also called to love Him perfectly. Full and complete worship. And I know that the world's all the time saying, well, if we all make a big mistake, then surely we must all be okay. The Bible doesn't go that route. The Bible says everybody who's opposed to God is in the wrong. The Bible says your obligation really is full and complete obedience to all of the law of God. And that even breaking it in one point is enough to incur his wrath. You and I have broken a whole lot more than one. We've broken thousands of places. What you need now is this grace that we've been talking about. What you need now is this grace of Christ forgiving you. You are not okay on your own. You need Christ. Turn to him. Believe. Cry out for him to save you. And God says that he will. Let's close in prayer. Father, we express and say with delight you are our God, our creator, our Lord, our judge, our ruler, our owner. We belong to you. We owe you. And we want, we want to live out a life that pleases you. We want to respond in a way that, that brings delight to you. So Father, help us to do it. I pray that this truth will root its way all the way down into our hearts and become a foundational belief that causes us, Lord, it affects every decision and every action, O oh Lord. Lead us, O oh God, to live out a life of glorifying you, obeying you. Please give us your grace as we leave. I pray for any unconverted in the room, O oh God, that you would take these truths, draw them to yourself, bring them to salvation. And we pray all these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.